Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Uh, welcome to Herd Tell. We are back with our boy Roy. That's not me saying that. That's actually his Twitter handle because he's just funny like that. Roy Matthews is back on the program. Been a minute since we talked to him. Uh, he does public policy for the uh, Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure, but we're going to talk a little foreign policy today. Roy, how you been, my friend? I've been pretty good. How about yourself? Uh, thrilled to see you again. Uh, okay. I love going. I love foreign policy. We're kind of in an isolation space in America. Let's just be honest. America's not really paying attention overseas unless it was Afghanistan. They've kind of paid attention to Ukraine a little better, I think, than some other things, but that's kind of waning. So why in the world do we need to pay attention to Kazakhstan all of a sudden? Well, most Americans don't know anything about Kazakhstan except for the Sasha Bowen character, Cohen character, uh, Borat. But Kazakhstan is actually a pretty important country, both geostrategically and for um, energy resources. Uh, Kazakhstan uh, exports, I think 80% of their exports are oil and natural gas. Uh, a lot of it used to go through Russia. But in recent time, there has been a lot of instability within the Kazakh regime. And the new president of Kazakhstan, um, Kasim Jomar Tokayev, has actually um, thumbed his nose publicly at the Russians. And in doing so, has um, encountered some difficulty with exporting that oil and gas um, to Europe. So there is a good opportunity here for the U.S. or other Western countries to both um, peel away a, what has been a very historically Russian ally and also uh, counteract Chinese investment for their Belt and Road initiatives. That That is a proposal to flood markets with Chinese products and allow the Chinese government to buy up strips of land and por portions of uh, geostrategic areas that they feel uh, would benefit their military. Now, so let's back up and make sure because people probably aren't real familiar with it. So let's just make sure everybody's on the same page. This is, of course, they were dominated by the Soviets like everybody else in that region for many, many decades. Their relationship has been pretty Moscow centric uh, over the last little bit. But then we had this meeting. Uh, he actually, you're not overstating it. He, this is in public. This was at a meeting in Europe. And he told him, he's like, we're not going to recognize Donetsk and Los, the breakaway regions in uh, Ukraine that Russia is finagling and frankly lying about to try to make them 
their own countries so they can annex them, take them over, dominate them. This was a really big deal, and it didn't seem to get a lot of press, especially in Western media. That's right. It's a pretty unprecedented for a Kazakh president or Kazakh leader to go on stage with a Russian president and tell him to his face that we are not going to recognize recognize the breakaway so-called republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, and also that they were not going to provide any military aid um, to the Ukraine war. And that has set off a lot of alarm bells within the Russian regime. Russian state media has been going on these tirades and threatening um, Kazakh over their Kazakhstan over their lack of support. And there have been several instances of Russian courts and the Russian government taking uh, retaliatory measures towards the Kazakh government for Tokayev's um, what they call ingratitude. Yeah. So who is, give us a little background on this guy, because there's some debate even within his own country of his legitimacy. Of course, Russia's all kinds of, well, you're not legitimate because now he's not playing ball with them. So take that for what that's worth. But even in his own country, you know, this isn't, this isn't a super stable guy. Is this politically calculated that he's going after Putin? Is this a matter of principle for him? Is it somewhere in the middle? Just give us some background on this guy. It's a little bit in the middle. And, you know, I, a big a objection to um, the sort of deification of Volodymyr Zelensky is that Ukraine's a very corrupt country and we don't really know sort of what um, his deal is. And it's sort of the same situation for Kazakhstan. Tokayev was the dictator, dictator's Nazarbayev's longtime deputy. Nazarbayev ruled Kazakhstan from its founding in the 1990s up until just recently in 2020. So he is very, very close to the old dictatorship. Um, but he has recognized that because Russia intervened into Kazakhstan and kept him uh, as president, uh, this was in back in earlier this year, uh, there were a couple of anti-government protests over fuel price increases, and that led to rioting, and a lot of people were killed, and the Russian regime had to send in um, special forces to help quell the rioting. And so a lot of the ordinary Kazakh people see Tokayev as just another Russian puppet who wasn't really elected, even though there was a snap election right after um, all this chaos died down. And so Tokayev, for him, he wants to appear legitimate because he wants to stay in power. And in order to do that, he kind of has to thumb his nose at the, um, well, at his patron, Russia. And in doing so, it's opened up a couple of opportunities for China, which Kazakhstan shares an eastern border with, to sort of fill that investment gap, fulfill um, fulfill what Russia is not doing, not facilitating Kazakh exports, not investing in infrastructure and other sorts of projects. Now, let's be adults here because we understand this is a different cultural region. Like you said, he has deep ties to the old regime, so he knows he knows how the sausage is made. He knows the game. So we know uh, Lukashenko, and we know how he is. He's He's seen as a puppet, but he will also occasionally thumb his nose at Putin for the good. Uh, Erdogan in Turkey, he plays both sides against the middle. He, he just publicly kind of made Putin look bad a couple weeks ago. And then you find out this week he's facilitating the Iran stuff under the table to help Putin out. Yep. Is it what it appears to be? Because in this region with these players, that's a fair question to always ask is, is what we're seeing when you see something that public to Vladimir Putin, is that something Putin's maybe playing along with? Because this is somebody he propped up with. Is that a concern? It is a concern. However, the actions taken by the Russian state show that Tokayev really is acting out of his own self-interest here. There was a uh, court order from a uh, Russian federal court that halted um, oil exports through the Caspian Oil Consortium, which is this uh, oil company in Kazakhstan that exports 80% of Kazakh oil, which is a massive amount of resources. 
and they, they what this court did was um, issued an injunction to halt all exports for 30 days out of some quote unquote corruption allegations. Um, this obviously um, frightened Tokayev because he doesn't want to be known as the guy who just took that lying down and led to the, the Kazakh economy shrinking. So he has actually directed the Kazakh state oil company, Kazmonai Gas, to start looking for alternate routes to other markets besides Russia for Kazakh gas. And it's already starting to happen. Um, Tokayev also announced that they, he is going to prioritize shipping more oil to Europe since obviously the Kazakh oil needs a market and Russia is a direct competitor and is also under heavy sanctions that are targeting oil and gas. Um, so Tokayev really is trying to shore up his own legitimacy. And I think the fact that the Russians are directly targeting the Kazakh economy and Tokayev is responding is that this is these actions are um, Tokayev's actions alone. Okay, so China makes this interesting, talking to our buddy Roy uh, back on her tell again. China makes this interesting for a couple of reasons because, yeah, they and, you know, Z and Putin are allies right now, but they're not natural allies. They're, nat they're, they're going to bump heads again somewhere down the road. China is showing some interest here. This is just another case along with some others where I don't think they would mind expanding business in Kazakhstan like they have some other places, even if it needles the Russians a little bit, because one is... This is how they expand their power. They do it financially. And two is you explain for people that don't have a map in front of them geographically. If you're going to do a Belt and Road Initiative and you're going to link Asia and Europe, this is one of those places you just physically have to go to, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, Kazakhstan sits on the one of the ancient old Silk Road pathways. And in order for Chinese products and Chinese investment to have a, a literal roadway to Europe, you're going to need to develop Kazakh infrastructure and transportation routes. So that's what the Chinese have done is they've sort of looked at Russian meddling in Kazakhstan and said, well, all right, this plays to our advantage because the Kazakhs, the, at least the Kazakh elites are looking for investments, looking for partnerships because everyone likes some Chinese money nowadays. So what they have, so what the Chinese have done is they have over 700 joint ventures between Kazakh and Chinese companies as of now. And China has become uh, Kazakhstan's largest trading partner and the biggest source of foreign direct investment. But this also doesn't really sit well with the Kazakh people um, because most of Kazakhstan are ethnic Kazakhs, along with some Uyghurs and other sort of Turkic steppe people, um, which are the same people that the Chinese have been imprisoning in the western province of Xinjiang. Excuse my pronunciation of that, um, which does not sit well with the Kazakh people at all. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, the Wagers, how this all goes together. There's some cultural stuff going on underneath this because politics and culture, doesn't matter what culture and politics you're talking about, they're going to go together. Talking to our buddy Roy Matthews, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back more on Kazakhstan. A lot of cross streams here, Russia, China, and you guessed it, there's even American oil companies involved because, of course, there is. More <laughs> with Roy Matthews right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
Welcome back to Herd Tell. Roy Matthews is back with us on the program. Talking a little foreign policy today. Kazakhstan, we love going overseas, getting a broad perspective. Here's another one of those countries. You know, Crossroads is not putting it too fine a point on it, is it, Roy? Because we have China, we have Russia. Obviously, you have the surrounding countries. None of them are particularly stable. And the biggest private exporter of oil is Chevron. That's an American company last time I checked. Uh, what's the stability factor here for this, especially if they start doing things with the gas, oil? We know how those things go. Talk about the stability of the country, especially if they start trying to switch from Russia to China and then maybe back again when it's advantageous to the regime. Certainly. So the Kazakh elites are very much uh, interested in more Chinese investment. Uh, they understand that it's ultimately going to hit their bottom line if Tokayev decides to anger the Russians and the Russians can shut off um pipeline routes through Russia that take their oil to market. Uh, however, the ordinary Cossacks have demonstrated, protested, and even rioted over um, additional Chinese projects in their country. Um, there were protests, obviously, over the uh, 2018 whistleblower um, that used to teach in the Uyghur concentration camps in China. Uh, this was a teacher who was an ethnic Kazakh who came to the press and who really sort of exposed um, the sterilization, the torture, uh, and the cultural genocide that's happening in these Chinese concentration camps. Um, and ordinary Kazakhs have um, protested against a scheme by the Kazakh government to allow Chinese investors and sometimes Chinese citizens to buy up large swaths of arable land in Kazakhstan, which is a huge issue because Kazakhstan is sits on a step. It's very dry. It's very arid. Uh, and it has a very cold winter. And so the Kazakh people worry about their own ability to provide food for themselves, whereas if the Chinese were to buy it, they're scared that the food will just be shipped to China. Yeah, and it's not just they have the largest diaspora of the Uyghurs coming out of China, both refugees and just naturally, because this is a mix of, like you said, Turkish steppe type peoples. There's a lot of different ethnic groups, even inside the ethnic groups here. Um, a bigger picture a little bit, because you have these Look, these folks aren't dumb. They see what's going on in Sri Lanka. They see what's going on in other parts of the world with China. It's not just culturally, is it? They're worried about self-identity and national sovereignty when it comes to taking this Chinese money because everybody got a cell phone, even in Kazakhstan now, and they're seeing like, wait a minute, it comes with stuff on the back ends if we don't make good on our part of it. No, absolutely. You couldn't have said it better. Um, and it's good that you brought up Sri Lanka because that's one of the biggest examples of the Chinese using debt traps to seize control of strategic as well as economically beneficial ports. Um, there is a port in Sri Lanka that was built completely with Chinese money, Chinese construction workers, Chinese materials. Um, and when the Sri Lankans could not pay for it, the Chinese just seized it. Now they have control of both a military base and a port. So the Kazakhs sort of look at uh, another example of um, factory relocations. Uh, the Chinese have attempted to relocate a lot of their heavy manufacturing, agricultural and industrial factories away um, from China and into Kazakhstan. And most of the Kazakhs don't want that because they see um, those bringing in a lot of um, Chinese workers. And what people need to understand is, is when China goes and invests in these places, they're not necessarily hiring the local population. Um, the Kazakhs can sort of make up support industries or have very limited roles in economies surrounding these large complexes, but it's mainly Han Chinese workers and it does, and those cultures do clash. There is a lot of historical animosity there. 
Um, and it makes a lot of the ordinary Kazakhs very, very nervous about um, different Chinese investment schemes in Kazakhstan. Yeah, Roy Matthews joining us. Okay. All of that said, all that history, all that culture, all that politics we just went through, you argue in your piece, International Politics Digest, that if we had a coherent foreign policy, there would be an opening here for uh, America or maybe the broader West, maybe Europe, to get a foothold of support here. Run us down the list. Pitch it to us like you were selling it to the EU. Why should they, or America, why should they step in here and try to fill the power vacuum away from Putin and make Kazakhstan more of an ally? Well, first off, I keep going back to oil and gas. You mentioned Chevron and American oil companies. Chevron and other American oil companies have been involved in Kazakhstan since its independence in the 1990s. They know that there's massive oil and gas deposits in the country, and they've reaped enormous profit from uh, building facilities, building refineries, and facilitating the transport of those resources. The U.S. has an opportunity here to, A, make some money and promote U.S. and promote U.S. investment instead of the alternative, which is Chinese and Russian investment, and also help supply Europe, which is now being um, subject to Russian geostrategic pressure via their own gas deposits as a way for Europe to get uh, a good source of energy without having to go through Russia. Um, so we already have a good strategic foothold through Chevron, through all these oil and gas companies. But the Cossack leadership needs to know that there are some other party out there that would be willing to invest and develop this economy. And in terms of Chinese investment with a lot of strings attached, attached and a cultural genocide happening that will not mesh well with the local populace and Russia, which is actively attacking their economy right now, U.S. investment looks very, very appealing um, for the for Kazakhstan. But the biggest uh, barrier to that is, I have a good quote from one of the articles I cited, is um, we don't really pay attention to Central Asia. Um, one of the one of these um, articles that I cited, uh, this is an entrepreneur in Kazakhstan uh, who was looking for uh, Chinese investment for a wind energy project. And he says, you know, quote, we traveled to the United States a few times. So when the quest first question was, quote, where is Kazakhstan? You understand they're not going to give you the money, end quote. And that's from a uh, piece that I cited in my essay. So it's very much just a lack of awareness, a lack of what Kazakhstan could do for us. Um, that's really holding the U.S. response back. Yeah, I think we get a little obsessed with more of the superpowers dealing with China, dealing with Russia. Not that we shouldn't. There's a lot of other things going on in the world. You can start clobbering three or four or five of those countries together and you start getting kind of close. It's just a we're, we're just in that period where our country just isn't paying attention overseas. It's going to bite us on the butt one of these days, I'm sure. Uh, Roy Matthews, this is great stuff. I hope people learned a little bit more about this region. Um, if nothing else, maybe they'll know that they need to pay attention to this going forward when the headlines pop up, either overseas media. Let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back again, my friend. What you normally do, because you don't always do foreign policy, you're usually off on other things. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you and what you got going on, my friend. Sure. You could follow me on Twitter at your boy underscore Roy 98 and with a Y in your boy. Uh, and you can also find me on LinkedIn and through the Young Voices talent page if you want to see any other articles or media appearances that I've made. Yeah, you do good work, my friend. It's great talking to you again. Let's do it again real, real soon. Let us know when you got something coming out, and we'll be happy to hash it out here on Hertel. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, buddy. 
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we haven't talked about Afghanistan lately, but we need to. There's a lot of stuff going on over there. It's almost the one-year anniversary of the pullout of America and the other allies and the mess that Kabul became. A uh, friend of ours from over in India joining us. He has a great piece out in International Policy Digest. Pratamesh Yamul joining us from India. How are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Hello, I'm pretty well. Thank you for having me here. I'm thrilled to have you. Okay, let's just start because let's be adults here. Most of the world stopped paying attention right after the Kabul fall. fell. Everybody got upset. They were mad for about a week or two, and then everybody worldwide moved on. Pick up the story from there because for the people of Afghanistan, and Afghanistan's population doubled over the 20 years of the American war there. Pick the story up there. What what happened after that that kind of led us up to what's going on now a year later? So basically, after the fall of Kabul, the Taliban managed to take over most of Afghanistan. There was um, an attempt by members of the previous uh, democratic government, such as the vice president, Amrullah Saleh, and um, Ahmed Masood, uh, who was, I guess, a military commander. He was a uh, son of the famous Ahmed Shah Masood. There was an attempt by them to put up resistance in the Panjshir Valley um in it's i think north of kabul as far as i remember and there was an attempt to put up resistance there which didn't last for too long you know they weren't that well supported they were support surrounded from all sides and um after that for the most part the taliban was able to take at least military control of the uh, country but what they haven't been able to form a government or an administration in the strictest sense they have formed a government a state they've appointed their leadership but there's been quite a quite an issue with the amount of control they can exert over the country and also how effectively they can govern uh, administer and um, enforce laws among other things one of the biggest problems they faced ever since they took kabul and took over afghanistan has been um an organization called isk or daesh k which is uh it is basically an affiliate of the islamic state in syria and iraq that we know so well and it's the local affiliate of uh isis called isis khorasan province or vilayat khorasan and they have basically um they were carrying out an insurgent and terrorist campaign even against the previous democratic government but they've kind of used the chaos that came with um the taking of kabul and you know the taliban trying to form a new state new government to exert their control over most of the country they've used that chaos to um 
exercise terror basically they've had they've had constant attacks on the taliban taliban troops taliban police and they've done constant um, terrorist attacks on civilian places they've attacked mosques they've attacked hospitals they've attacked um schools they've as recently as yesterday there was an uh, not yesterday i'm sorry as recent as a few weeks ago or a month ago there was an attack on a gurudwara which is a sikh religious site in kabul where uh, an isis militant attempted to uh, kill a bunch of uh, peaceful worshippers basically and these attacks have been for the majority been focused like the terror attacks have been focused on civilians and have disproportionately affected the minority communities like the shia muslims and uh, sikhs and hindus in afghanistan and um isis k has kind of been unrelenting in their attacks on the taliban and the civilian population they've constantly kept up the pressure and they've used this chaos to kind of um form a stronghold of sorts in two major provinces in uh, northeastern afghanistan mainly nangarhar and kunar province and um, a third called nuristan where they have a somewhat lesser presence and these are high mountainous provinces you know hard to get so they've basically stuck there and formed a kind of local base there and ever since they've constantly been attacking civilian sites they've been attacking taliban members and they've been trying to sow as much chaos and create as much instability as they could and basically that's what's been going on there've been major attacks they've attacked um they've attacked shiite mosques they've attacked uh, sikh religious sites they've attacked hospitals they were, i think they attacked uh, a maternal hospital if i'm not wrong they've also carried out very sophisticated for um for the region they've carried out very sophisticated terrorist attacks on um the afghan power grid they've attacked uh, power electricity towers which resulted in blackouts for large portions of uh, afghanistan and they did this on a very strategic uh, time they did it close to the e holiday of eid and um basically they've been trying to sow as much chaos as possible if you uh, remember during the american pull out from afghanistan or the fall of kabul there was a suicide attack at kabul airport where uh, american servicemen died and you know 170 or so afghans died if i'm not wrong and uh, this attack was also carried out by isis khorasan so basically they have been attempting to uh, use the chaos and the i i'd say position of instability that always comes with a new armed revolution taking control to basically advance their agenda and they've been attacking basically everyone in the region now on the outside observers because we don't always pay real close attention to this in the west especially in american media when americans aren't involved people probably are wondering why are they fighting There's some important differences between ISIS-K and the Taliban though. The Taliban of course came out of the Pashtun nationalism, the tribal people, they were the original um the Mujahideen if you're old enough to go all the way back to the Soviet era. Uh for lack of a better way of explaining it, ISIS-K sees them more locally and they see themselves as more of the international branch. There's some other ideological differences though. Why is it a shooting blood for you? You call it a turf war for our western parlance. 
this is just going to be an internal thing, right? There's not going to be any detente here. There's not going to be a peace among them, right? Not likely. Because, well, for one, this is, I call it a turf war, because this conflict is not only ideological, but for some of them, it's personal. You see, ISIS Khorasan actually formed from a breakaway group of what, of the organization that is Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan, which is basically the Pakistani Taliban. Uh, so two of the major leaders who formed ISIS-K, one of them was Hafiz Saeed Khan, who was a Pakistani from Tehreek-e-Taliban Pakistan. And another one, uh, I can't remember his name, but was a pretty high uh, Taliban leader, Afghan Taliban leader. So this isn't just ideological, but is also quite literally uh, the result of personal disputes within the leadership. Along with this, there is, of course, the fact that um, that basically both organizations are kind of going for the same core audience. They're, say, go, they're going to recruit the same core group of uh, radically inclined uh, people who are ready to fight. Along with that, this conflict also has its roots, uh, kind of, in the general conflict internationally among uh, jihadists that we see between al-Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State. The Islamic State broke away as a part of al-Qaeda and uh, they both claim to lead a worldwide Islamist movement. So it's partly because of partly because they're you know going for the same position. They're not going to have any form of detente because Islamic State claims itself to be a province. Uh, Islamic State in Khorasan claims to be a province of um, the global Islamic Caliphate. They will have an Amir. The Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan also claims to have an Amir as their leader. You can't have two um, leaders in one place. And the, so there's not really as much of a scope for a detente especially because they also come from two relatively different streams of um islamic conservatism the taliban are deobandis which is an islamic uh, revivalist movement a fundamentalist movement that was founded in uh, colonial era india and uh, it has its roots much closer to pashtun ethnic um nationalism and their ethnic code called pakhtun wali while um the Islamic State is Salafist, you know, they have their roots in the Middle East and they have a much more global outlook for one. And another thing is that um, the Islamic State is kind of a kind of an attraction for those Islamists in Afghanistan who are not Pashtuns like Tajiks, Uzbeks. We can see this especially because an organization called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan uh, merged with ISIS-K very early on because historically um, the Taliban has been a Pashtun-dominated organization and when they ruled in the 90s, it was not a good time for a lot of non-Pashtun people in Afghanistan and those memories still stand and especially because the democratic government of Afghanistan was dominated by these ethnic groups which are non-Pashtun. So there's a certain ethnic element to it in that a lot of people who share similar fundamentalist views probably would feel that um, ISIS might be more conductive to them. They might have a better place there than a somewhat nationalist, ethnically based movement like the Taliban. 
Yeah, Pride Emotion Yomul joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get back into his article uh, at International Policy Digest, how the Taliban's doing actually running the country as opposed to just being the operational forces. A lot of bad news there. Also talk about the future Afghanistan update, what's been going on over there. Our friend Pat Yomul joining us on Herdtel. More right after this break. Welcome back to Herd Tell. Our friend Padmesh Yamul from over in India joining us. We're talking Afghanistan. Uh, my friend, you mentioned it in your article. We've linked to it, International Policy Digest. Make sure you read the whole article for yourself. Part of the problem with the Taliban is having now, and it was very predictable because we talked about it during the drawdown and the total chaos that that was when they took over Kabul. Um, they have to actually govern now. And they're not only actually having to govern but they're having to govern over a very different country than they used to govern before the American intervention. The population has doubled. The population is extremely young. The average age in Afghanistan is like mid twenties now. And there's still a country that is very, very strained on resources as it always has. And now all that American money is gone. This looked like a recipe for disaster for them to try to rule because they don't have any experience running a country. And that's pretty much how it's played out. And now with all these issues, like with ISIS-K, you've got a lot of people fighting over a dwindling amount of resources and a very, very stressed population, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you have you have a country that's been at war for pretty much 43 years now, continuously. You You also have a situation where the Taliban does not really have many international allies. They don't have access to international streams of funding. Any resources that the uh, former government had, the you know Ghani government, they're all frozen in international banks. The Taliban does not have a lot of money per se, and they don't exactly have yet the expertise to rule or administer a country as either. They've basically spent the last 20 years fighting a guerrilla war against uh, American and uh, Afghan security forces. And they, they have never had, even though they've held territory for quite a long time, unlike a lot of other guerrilla um, movements, they've never attempted to, let's say, form a local administration or a shadow administration in place. They've, in the war in Afghanistan has been a constant, you know, hide and seek game between uh, allied forces, uh, NATO forces and between the Taliban. So that leaves a situation where the, the Taliban have now won. And a lot of them will be asking themselves, okay, what do we do now? Along with this, there's also, how do I say it? There's also certain amounts of internal conflicts between the Taliban. There is, of course, the issue that there is the general Taliban that um, exists in Afghanistan is not exactly a centralized leadership. It's made up of a lot of local warlords, local forces, a lot of people who switched over to the Taliban only in recent times when, you know, the wind started blowing the other way. There's also the issue of a large block in the Taliban is made up of the so-called Haqqani network led by Sirajuddin Haqqani, which is quite literally a, a whole separate organization within the Taliban. There's also an issue 
regarding um, differences between the Taliban political leadership, which has been in Doha, and you know the one that once that negotiated with the United States who signed the agreement, and the actual on the ground, you know, military leaders, and we don't know whether the military leaders would want to you know toe the same line that the political leadership would the political leadership definitely wants to rule and administer in whatever way they see administration being but a lot of for people who have been at war um for longer than their whole lives it raises a question of how do you ease them into um a civilian peacetime administration uh, in a country like Afghanistan, where conflict is so prolonged, there's not much left to get money from. There's not there's not mu there's not much uh, sources of funding left for reconstructing a government. Along with this, at least as of yet, we have not seen the Taliban try to moderate their stance on any of their major issues, and um, this means that you know the international community is not going to help them that much either. Right. And, um, things. I'm sorry, Pat Mesh uh, joining us. Uh, part of the reason they cannot get the international community, though, is not just their own brutality. As predicted, they did the massive crackdown on girls and women. You addressed it in your article. Um, let's just be honest here. People that have spent years as guerrilla fighters, they have a rigid ideology when it comes to women and minority groups and other folks and other religious groups they're really in a corner here that they're never going to really get international recognition unless they have some dramatical revolutionary change in how they do things. Is that still the stance because we saw the crackdown on women and girls in schools and all that? Is there any hint at all that they're ever going to change? Because I'm very skeptical that they will. I don't think so, honestly. And, you know, recent events have given us even more um, food for thought in uh, on in the sense that um, in around three days ago in Kabul, uh, there was an American drone strike that resulted in the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was the longtime leader of Al-Qaeda, the second most important person in Al-Qaeda after Osama bin Laden. Now, one of the major factors in America signing a deal with the Taliban was that the Taliban promised in their Doha agreement in 2021 not to support Al-Qaeda, not to allow them presence in Afghanistan. and um, they've clearly broken that. So not only are their policies not conductive to an international, um, let's say, acceptance, not only have they broken an international agreement, now it's very clear that they were housing the most important Al-Qaeda leader in their, in their capital, nonetheless. And um, they have not denied it. They have, in fact, called this an American uh, attack on their sovereignty. And, of course, you know that's a different debate but the the point that comes here is that they've basically create made themselves even less um ideal as a partner in international eyes and now that they've also been harboring the leader of probably world's most infam infamous terrorist group it's just worse Pratamish ML joining us let's let's talk big picture for just a second we know what happened we know what a mess afghanistan is talk about the people of afghanistan because this we just talked about it the population has doubled this generation didn't live under the taliban previously almost any of them they are now 
you ended your article on kind of a down note of like, you know, the real story here is this is a country that has suffered immensely and they're going to continue to suffer and they're going to have even more chaos. Is there any hope for Afghanistan at all right now? Because something like the Zahawi strike, that means even less America paying attention because obviously they had a network to make that happen. We They had to have, you know, some inroads. They're probably going to care even less now that you don't have something like that to go after. The world is not paying attention to this. We're one year removed from Cabal falling. You know, you can't find Afghanistan in the headlines. Are they just doomed to another couple decades of this mess? Is that where we're at with this? I mean, it's likely. Now, the issue with ISIS Khorasan is that the Taliban has been trying to deal with them. You know, they've been trying to deal with them in a military and uh, counterinsurgency sense. But the Taliban has been, for lack of better uh, phrasing, has been using an approach that can be described as, you know, every problem is a nail if you have a big enough hammer. And this has led to a lot of civilian casualties, a lot of, um, let's say, extrajudicial killings, a lot of collateral damage. And that's not how you run an ins- run a counterinsurgency. You know, the more innocents you kill, the more you give credence to the ISIS's claim that this is an illegitimate government or an illegitimate administration. While the Taliban, while ISIS has a very small presence, let's say territory-wise or uh, in terms of personnel, they've been conducting attacks widely beyond this uh, territorial presence. They've been attacking, they've been conducting regular attacks in Kabul. They've been conducting regular attacks everywhere. And the more the Taliban, you know, tries to deal with this, with a blunt approach, the more it's just going to worsen things. And I don't know about uh, the next 30 years of conflict, but this thing is going to rage for a while, especially if, you know, uh, they don't get help from foreign actors and they haven't been able to in- improve their relations with their neighbor neighbors either. You know, they've had uh, border clashes with Iran and we have seen how Iran res- uh, responds to instability on their borders. You know, they have responded to instability on their borders in Iraq and Syria. We don't know what they would do in Afghanistan. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not really very bright for the future because while the Taliban has gained control over their country, they're not being able to um, exercise exercise the ability and, uh, let's say, power that a normal government does. They're constantly having to deal with issues which, if it was in a conventional state somewhere, we'd see, we just call it a failed state. Like, so basically, for the next at least five or ten years, I see maybe this conflict simmering down a bit in five years or ten years, but it's very rough because ISIS has shown that you can take their territory, you can kill their militants, they'll just have more. And the thing is, they don't need a lot of people to carry out the, the kind of attacks they are carrying out. And another major issue is that ISIS Khorasan is... Operating in the provinces bordering Pakistan, and they have a major presence in Khyber Pakhtunwa, which is the province of Pakistan, which borders um, Afghanistan. So this becomes a you know transnational problem, and the border around those areas is very porous. So and it, there's a lot of highland mountainous territory, which the Taliban will find it very hard to you know 
exercise a, an effective counterinsurgency operation in. Now, the other option then defeating them militarily is um, coming to terms with them. And I I feel it might be a possibility for Taliban, but as said before, they have too many differences for them to properly come to terms in an agreement. And I just see this conflict getting worse for the next couple of years because the Taliban is not being able to exercise effective uh, monopoly of violence in their country. Basically, they're not being able to uh, make sure that they're the only actor who can, you know, use armed actions. And as long as they aren't able to do this, they're basically all going to operate as a failed state. And I don't see that changing for quite a while. Yeah, oddly enough, the uh, same things that allowed them to operate for decades and come to power themselves is now limiting their ability to stay in power and keep stability. Uh, Pratamishi Amul, great stuff today. One last question for you, though, for the Western audience, because our news media is basically ignoring this unless something like the Zawahiri thing happens or, God forbid, you know, there's a massive death toll or something like that. What's a good way for folks to keep track of what's going on in Afghanistan? What should they be watching for? Because there's always going to be these little clashes what should the Western audience and the American and English speaking world audience be watching for that something is changing or something is getting better or worse over there? They should be watching for, honestly speaking, this conflict for now has been very steady. It's been very, for lack of a better word, it's been, it's been consistent, but cons like consistent in a negative way. There's not, there's no changes that have been occurring for Western audiences. I'd say, there's always news about it. It's just buried underneath a lot of other, um, let's say, more important things for the West, maybe. But I would advise uh, just keeping, I would advise being informed about what ISIS does and what ISIS says. Because um, as with the Middle East and ISIS, they're, you know, very vocal about what they're trying to do and of course the uh, the taliban has also become more media savvy they're putting out releases about their supposed counterinsurgency operations and the successes of it i would try to look for the impact on the civilians the moment you see the impact on civilians lessening you know there's you find out that there's some kind of solution uh coming up but unfortunately for now it's not like that just recently you know uh, in something that's more closely related to my uh, location, uh, there's been a relative mass exodus of Afghan Sikhs uh, leaving their country and fleeing to India because it's simply not that safe anymore. Because there's ISIS targeting them, the Taliban is not going to help them out that much. They're infidels for the more radical members of the Taliban. So, you know, you have a community in the few hundreds of which there are scores fleeing back to India. And of course, um, while I'm happy they have a safe haven here to come to, it's also sad that they have to leave homes which they have occupied for centuries. And it just shows that, you know, the most important thing here is the civilians. And until we see less civilians being affected, it's, it's not going to get better. Yeah, well said, my friend. 
uh, Pradamesh Yamul joining us on Hertel. We're definitely going to have you back, my friend. You've got good information. You present it well. We appreciate your insight. Let folks know how they can keep up with what you've got going on. We're going to link to your article. Let them know how they can follow you and what else you have going on, my friend, until we see you again. Um, I just have a blog that I operate on mostly issues like this. It's um, stuff.wordpress.com, but uh, th there's no T's, there's sevens instead. And you can just uh, visit me there. I write articles about things regularly. Of course, I also plan on writing more for um, publications like the International Policy Digest. So um, hopefully you can read more there. Yep, and we'll link to his blog and his other work. You do good work. We look forward to having you back real soon, my friend. Thank you so very much for the time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and contribute. Thank you. Yes, sir. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.